On today's episode, I sit with Jason V. Jason is a music tech executive who started his career in investment banking at UBS and transitioned into entertainment, media, and tech. I do a little bio at the start of this episode anyhow, so let's just kick it off. And now, hosted by Harry G, this is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's your top dog with info that can't be bought, it's gotta be sought. So sit back, crack a six-pack, because we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the First Act Podcast. So today we've got New York's very own Jason V in the house for the First Act Podcast. I'm really, really stoked about today's episode. So for those of you who don't know, Jason V is an executive in the music and tech industry. He currently holds the role of VP of Artist Partnerships at 88 Rising which is the leading record label and media company that manages Asian artists around the world. Prior to that, Jason was head of business development at Deezer, a global music streaming company. Jason has also led strategic music partnerships at Google and has held various roles at Viacom and Disney. Jason's also a graduate of NYU's Stern Business School and has guest lectured at Harvard Business School and at NYU. Jason is also passionate about rising entrepreneurs and the startup ecosystem and has a consulting company called JV Media Ventures to consult, advise, and invest in media and tech startups. So without further ado, what's up, Jason? Thanks for being on here. Thanks, Harrison, for having me. You know, living in our new COVID times, but grateful for the smaller things in life and grateful to have my health. I like that. I like that answer. It's, you know, health is more important than anything in this day and age. And I presume you've been able to work remotely, right? That's right. Yes. Um, but I think I've been actually accustomed to cultures that I've had at, you know, workplaces like Google that had already adopted a pretty great remote culture because I was working with global teams. So um, having some of that um, under my belt has been helpful, I think, to ease into this 100%, you know, working from home culture that many of us are now in. That's true. You've been in the tech industry now for more than 10 years, I presume, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I would love to know, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners would really love to know, you know, what is a day in the life for you nowadays? I, I, I know that you're relatively new to your role at 88 Rising. Sure. Um, I would say, I mean, every, every day could, could be different, um, but my role at 88 Rising is to look for new innovative partnerships for our artists. And, you know, many of the artists that we represent are quite groundbreaking in their own right. Um, you know, the mission of 88 Rising is to amplify the voices of Asian artists um, that, you know, we believe are still underrepresented and misrepresented in the music industry um, at large. So finding, you know, like-minded companies and brands and strategic partners that want to authentically tap into what's happening in Asian culture, um, but not really exclusive really to the Asian audience, because what you're seeing with um, music from Asian artists is that it's actually transcending right into the mainstream and um, you have many types of people listening to it, not just the Asian audience. So what are some of the partnerships that you, I don't know if you could talk about you have in the works, but what are some of the partnerships that you've forged over the last year? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. 
Our world, like many others, was rocked upside down by COVID-19. So we were preparing for a pretty massive performance at Coachella. Um, it was the first time they invited a record label like us to be a headliner. Wow. Um, and we were also going to bring our own music festival property, Heads in the Clouds. This is something that we've done in Los Angeles the last two years and had 35,000 attendees. And we were bringing it internationally for the first time to Indonesia. And both of those things were canceled um, due to the pandemic. So as you can imagine, it was very frustrating. But, you know, with, with what's happening could, could potentially bring new opportunities. You know, th- there were a lot of live streams that are happening out there, you know, uh, that was starting because of the pandemic and everyone was at home. But there wasn't one that united the Asian community. So entering, you know, this, this opportunity to bring in our roster of artists and also other Asian artists around the world. So what we end up doing at 8 Rising is we invited 24 rising and amazing Asian talents around the world for virtual music festival. And um, in terms of some of the distribution partnerships, I worked with YouTube, Twitter, TikTok to stream this festival. I would say we really didn't know, you know, how it was going to turn out in terms of viewership because of what was happening and the fact that you know, especially if you look at the U.S., the Asian community has been holding a lot of the burden um, because of the racism and like how this virus has been perceived against the, the Asian community. Right. So there was also this somewhat of this like nervousness, I would say, that we actually did have as a company. And I certainly felt that as well. How would it be perceived to have this Asian festival during this time? But in many ways, I felt that was exactly the reason why we need to do it to showcase, I think, this representation and, you know, kind of give this inspiration even during a time where I would say the Asian community has has felt very disconnected. In the end, we debuted it on May 6th um, and and we were pretty astounded by the viewership. We had 8.5 million viewers globally of the um, festival. And, um, you know, another element that I was quite proud of is I was tasked with finding a charity that we can support. Um, and we did, and we donated on um, proceeds from the festival to Asian Americans advancing justice, um, which is a nonprofit that I met with that they're, they're just doing amazing things in the space on, you know, providing a response on why racism is not okay. And it's not the answer. And, and they've also doing like bystander trainings on what to do when you do see racism. Um, and we supported them. And you know, they, they had told me that it was one of their most successful fundraising campaigns, kind of seeing, you know, in real time, the, the donations coming in from YouTube. And one of the partners that I brought in from a brand or corporate standpoint was Panda Express um, that did a brand segment within our festival. So, um, yeah, that was a major project that I worked on during the pandemic. I really like that. Wow, I have so many questions around that. But so the first question that I have is about partnerships, right? You mentioned that you had a bunch of different partnerships for the live streaming component. Was there one in particular that you ended up realizing that was most successful? Like most people tuned in either over YouTube or how how did that work? Good question. So the approach that we took was multi-platform because 
In this day and age, we do see our audience um, leveraging different platforms for different reasons. And, you know, whether it's YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, you know, for, for the younger audience. And, and there's also um, re- regional differences. You know, all the platforms I just named do not operate in China. And we also have a growing base. We also have a local office in China as well. So what we did was we streamed um, the Asia Rising Forever Festival on many of the platforms that we already have strong global reach. Um, and YouTube was, was one of the avenues that did um, grab um, a lot of viewership. But we also decided to add in a Chinese streaming platform called Weibo. Weibo is like the Twitter um, of China. And when we added it, it actually brought in millions of viewers on that platform alone, which we otherwise would not have gotten because all those other platforms are actually blocked in China. So I think sometimes really taking a very global approach to what you're doing could be important and being cognizant of where your viewers are. Wow. Okay. No, that's interesting. I, w- I wasn't expecting that. And, and you, you mentioned you got a, a few million viewers from Weibo. That's right. Wow. Yeah. And so... How does this work in terms of monetization? Was it purely donation-based, or did people have to pay money to tune into the live stream? Um, it was a free live stream, because we really believe that we wanted to have as many people be able to access this entertainment for free. And if they you know, felt that they wanted to support our charity partner, um, they had the option to, to donate, whether it was through YouTube, they, they could also donate on the um, Asian Americans Advancing Justice website. We created a special page on their site um, specifically with the live stream and we tweeted that link. So there's multiple ways that you can contribute if you like. I ask these questions because I think that right now nobody really knows the best way to live stream. You know, it's still so new and there's so few companies that have been offering this for longer than, you know, a year or two. Moving along from there, if you were to meet somebody like at a bar or at a dinner prior to COVID, how would you describe from a high level perspective what your job is at 88? Hmm, that's a good question. That's because um, I can't remember the last time I was at a bar. <laughs> <laughs> I was I feel that my job at 8 Rising is to figure out how to put more people that look like me as an, as an Asian American into mainstream media and how do I create more opportunities for the diverse array of artists that, that we represent. Um, so there's this broader you know, mission that we have of representation, um, which we think is still a big need within the community at large and especially in the music industry. So, so you create new opportunities for, for people to connect with Asian artists from really globally, but I guess more specifically from like from the Asian American culture. Yeah, that's right. Cool. And so I guess, you know, in your other roles, I guess none of the companies that you're working for were Asian specific. Do you feel like you identify a little bit more with, with your current role than you have with any other roles in the past? I think it's, it's kind of been this interesting journey too. you know, for me, Entering through my, you know, my career um, in media and tech, because I would say in the, you know, this is, this is the first time where I've actually worked with so many other Asian and Asian Americans in my company, which I think it's, it's pretty cool to see. And um, 
and you know where and and I would certainly love to see more of it because there there aren't a lot of companies doing what we're doing. Um, but but yes, like you know when I look back at my career, um, and you know whether it's at Disney or Deezer, um, which is a a music streaming platform, um, I was often the only the only like Asian person in the room, and I would say that did create this urge for me to figure out how can I leverage my Asian identity, leverage it, I think, also in terms of creating more opportunities for, for others um, in my community. Great. And I, I really hope that, you know, for any listeners out there, whether they're Asian American or not, I think that you are a perfect example of a great role model, you know, really paving your way within entertainment and within music and tech, you know, you even have your own consulting company. Do you mind chatting a little bit about that, telling us, you know, maybe some of the projects that you've worked on? Yeah, for sure. So um, JB Media Ventures is my, I would say like, like my sandbox for fun projects that the companies that I can offer consulting from my experience in media and tech. Um, and I've also made investments and, and advise companies as well. Current ones that I'm happy to highlight, HiFi is, is a company that I consulted last year. So it's an early stage music startup, uh, raised a couple of million dollars of funding. And the idea behind HiFi is that, you know, musicians and artists today are not really good at data management or understanding their revenue sources. They're getting royalties from many different sources. Most of that revenue is also delayed in many ways. A fun fact is that as a musician, your royalties can come in anywhere between six to 24 months after you listen to that stream. So there's all these spreadsheets that are coming your way, these random checks coming in the mail, and we're expecting that these artists are really great mathematicians. And many of them, maybe if you're fortunate enough to have a business manager, kind of shift to that, that's great. But many, many times, maybe you don't even have a resource to have that. So HiFi is this intelligent AI-powered tool that can, you know, you can connect all your different sources of income as an artist, and it'll give you this dashboard to manage um, all of your royalty streams in one place. And then the, uh, the second element that I was advising them on was the launch of this new cash flow product. You know, many musicians want just like what employees the companies have, which is this bi-weekly paycheck. Right. But, um, you know, the, the musicians don't because they're just getting these, these checks and they're coming and they're always delayed. They're very sporadic. So, um, exactly, right. So, you know, how, how can you kind of smooth these like spikes um, and do it in a way that can create more stability for artists? So the essence of this um, cash flow product that was, that was in development is to essentially pay the select artists a bi-weekly paycheck and HiFi would essentially just kind of model out what are the future income streams over the course of a year and then give that um, artist this, this regular paycheck. So does that mean that, that, that HiFi would collect it for them, pay them out first and then just collect, collect whatever would be coming to the artists for themselves afterwards? Yeah, that's, that would be the idea. I like that. That sounds really innovative. 
and uh, it sounds exciting. We'll, we'll come back to some of the uh, some of the music and tech projects that you're working on. I do want to kind of jump in, get started, and know a little bit about how you got to where you are today. Where are you from? So I was born and raised in Queens in New York City. Okay. So what was it like growing up in your household? I was definitely um, a geek growing up. I was fascinated by my Gateway 2000 giant, giant computer and fascinated with, you know, the, the 28K modem that then, you know, doubled its speed to 56K. And that was, you know, around the time that eBay and Amazon was just starting out um, in 95 to 99. So I was always on the internet while my friends were playing basketball after school. And I became so fascinated that I had even this vision that e-commerce was going to be the, the future um, where people would be buying things online. And, you know, at this time in 1998, 1999, it really wasn't happening, right? Like all, everything was still happening in physical retail. And I, you know, took it a step further and actually as a 13 year old, um, decided to start my own um, online business. It was really just an, an experiment at first. Um, you know, I learned HTML, I built my own website, and I started selling uh, gadgets on them, like sharper image, photo frames, vacuums that are small. And how I did that was I would negotiate with warehouses to, to purchase like a, like a reasonable amount of quantity, but there'll be multiples of them and get a discount, and I sold them for more incrementally on my website. And when that model was working, I kept using the profits to like expand my inventory. But I also had a um, constraint of the amount of inventory that I can take on because that inventory space was my parents' garage. And I had them park the cart outside the garage so that I could fit my new business merchandise. It's kind of crazy that my parents, you know, didn't, stop me from doing what I was doing because I didn't always know what I was doing. You know, looking back, I think growing up in terms of just like what it was like in my household, I think my parents really did have this like great support of like, just, you know, I may have these crazy ideas, whether it's building this business or trying to launch a same career in American Idol. And I can talk about that later, but, <laughs> but then just actually supporting it, which I think allowed me to kind of go through this trial and, and, and error of learning my way through the business and music world. And, you know, that business, looking back, you know, I ended up, you know, running it for five years and generating enough profit to self-fund my college degree at NYU Stern. Um, wow. so that was kind of the beginnings of how I learned business. That's an incredible story. I was not <laughs> expecting that just from this, <laughs> from this question. I love that. Wow, it sounds like you were a brilliant 13-year-old. I don't know. I think I was just kind of like somehow fascinated by the internet and it just became this weird, like, like it was my basketball was the best way to put it. Why did you stop? I stopped because I got into um, NYU uh, and I specifically applied to Stern to really formally study business because I, I mean, running that business was just, based on what I thought I knew about business, you know, when I was pricing an item, you know, and I tried $24.99 versus $25. And sometimes you see more sales for $24.99 because of the optics that I was lower. Right. I was just kind of learning all those things. And then it was pretty amazing, you know, joining um, 
a great institution at NYU and actually when I was learning finance or marketing, I was able to always think about that business and maybe how it could have done things better or maybe this is that phenomenon of what was happening and kind of studying it formally. And, you know, I decided to, to stop doing that business um, so that I could, you know, actually focus on, on my college degree. <laughs> Wow, it's a big decision to to give up like a steady income stream like that, especially it's like a baby that you've built over the last like five or six years. So now you're at NYU, you're at Stern School of Business. Were you a good student? The funny thing is that I'm not really good at standardized tests um, so, or like just sometimes tests in general. I, I think I, I, you know, would may need to like, study harder to, to um, do, do well. So I, I, I wouldn't say it was a, it was a cakewalk, um, but I, I would, you know, particularly enjoy, I think, um, things that I felt made me think about, like how it can relate to the real world. Um, I think sometimes like if it's a class that just had like no applications or was very like abstract, uh, I think sometimes I would lose of my energy and, and focus on it. Um, maybe that's because I, I also had started this business and it worked well. So I'm kind of actually looking for nuggets in terms of like how, you know, like if, you're, if I'm learning statistics, like how, how is that, like how is that leading to how you evaluate a company in terms of like its, its probability to be bankrupt? Or if it's a, a class about um, entertainment, like what was happening in terms of digital media versus traditional media? So really like taking it a step to actually figure out what's happening in the world today, which would make me feel more connected to it. So what were some of your favorite classes? Um, that's a good question. Gosh, I have to really think back um, to the NYU days that feel so, so long ago. Um, I really, so I majored in finance and economics and, um, you know, probably many people will think that economics is kind of, theoretical business. Um, however, I enjoyed a lot of my economic classes um, because I actually felt that there's so much that I learned from, from economics in terms of how to make me more efficient in my own life. I'll give you one example. So growing up in you know, a Chinese family, I was always pressured to um, get a hundred on every test. There was just that's kind of a typical strict Asian parents wanting wanting me to do the best that I can and not being satisfied um, unless I kind of brought home that perfect score. And I would say like I probably did operate like that um, the, the majority of like junior high school. And but when I really focused on economics as a major, you know, one thing that it taught me was declining marginal returns. So, you know, in other words, when you're studying for something and you're trying to get like an 85 or 90 on it, um, you, you would spend like X amount of hours. But from getting from that 90 to 100, you might actually spend even just as much time because like getting that perfect score could just be like, you, you might be like, memorizing something or spending even more, more time. And um, economics taught me that it might not be worth it actually to spend that, all that additional time to get that perfect score. Because if I maybe settled for something that was appeasing to me, let's say that 90, that would be a pretty good score. And then all those additional hours, I could use it for something else. 
right. whether it's entertainment or maybe networking or studying something else. And that would, that would give me greater balance. And that was actually quite revolutionary in terms of just kind of thinking about applying that into my own life. That's very smart. You're saying, okay, well, yeah. if, if I spent 10 hours studying for this, I could spend another 10 trying to get, you know, between 90 and 100, or I could spend those 10 hours doing something else that I would enjoy more, or it would benefit me a little bit more, those extra few marks. So you decided to go into banking. Why? Good question. So um, I think the, you know, the finance and economics background at NYU, I enjoyed, I think, being able to kind of hone in on my analytical skills, really understand like how businesses operate. And as I was thinking about the next career to take on, um, I think it was a mixture of different things. It was how do I get like a really great crash course into, you know, a, a this time a real business, right? Like the, the one that I operated by myself was really just a lot of trial and error. And NYU CERN was actually one of the top schools for Wall Street and investment banking. Um, and as these companies kind of came and recruited and gave these information sessions, it made me interested into, you know, what was it like um, to work on deals that can touch uh, media and tech? And I ended up taking a job at UBS focused on media and tech IPOs, which really interesting, I think, to be able to work on these million dollar deals really early in my career and, um, and take a lot of various learnings from it. What was the work life like working in, in banking? Awful, <laughs> initially at least. Um, I would say, uh, you know, so I started at UBS in 2007 and you know, easy, easy would be like 12 hour days, um, including the weekends. You know, it was tough. I think being able to like kind of, kind of join that type of a culture. But it's funny because I think what I would remind myself though is that, you know, this, this is an amazing opportunity. Um, and I should be grateful for it, which, which I certainly was. I mean, it was hard. You're tired at night, but also not really complaining about it, knowing that this was a great opportunity to learn from the best and be able to learn about so many different deals. And I think then 2008 came and that was the great recession and it was just pandemonium. And so you were only in banking though for a few years. Two years, yep. And so why did you decide to leave? I decided to leave because of um, the economic conditions. Um, it was no longer to me so exciting to work in IPOs when the markets had dried up. Um, so it did give me, I think, license to think about what else am I really interested in, um, knowing that there was not a lot going on in Wall Street. And also, you know, the toxicity of Wall Street did affect me. You know, it, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the best work culture at that moment. So I thought about what could be an interesting opportunity and interest in maybe living abroad. And um, this is kind of funny how organically it happened. but. So at UBS on Park Avenue in New York was also the Japanese consulate inside our building. And through the Japanese consulate, um, there was a program where they're looking for international teachers to come to Japan and teach English and internationalize the local communities. Fun fact, I've actually always wanted to be a teacher growing up. I really admired my teachers in, and you know, growing up in Queens. So it kind of, this weird light bulb hit 
when, you know, we were in this recession and maybe this could be an opportunity to do something that I otherwise would not have done. And I applied for the JET program, which is a government-sponsored program to teach English in Japan. I got in and I moved to um, Japan and lived in Okayama. Um, it is a smaller city. It's the 15th largest city in Japan. And um, it, was a, it was this amazing one-year experience where I think initially I thought it was going to be a cakewalk, um, having, you know, worked on Wall Street where the hours were insane. And then, you know, with being a teacher, your hours are between the hours of 8 to 2.30 or 3 o'clock. Right. But I would say, Harrison, in many ways, it was tougher working in that teacher role because you're on, you know, during when I'm teaching the class, like the students are looking at me and, you know, like, you know, at UBS where maybe I could close my eyes and looking, looking at the spreadsheet or maybe take, you know, a lunch break or whatever I want. Um, it was very different to have like that pressure, you know, to be very energetic and the output of what I was doing in front of the classroom would directly relate to, I think, the energy of the students. So it actually was quite exhausting, but it gave me this new, I think, skill set that I would say I was quite poor in at UBS, which was um, a communication skill that I was able to gain through the teaching profession. I, I can definitely resonate with that. While I've never really been a teacher in school, while you were building a website at 13, I was riding my bike to different houses in, the, in my neighborhood, teaching guitar lessons, teaching math. It's fun. Like you said, it, it's, it's, a, it's also very rewarding and it taps into your creative side of your brain. So you left banking, you worked as a teacher for a year in Japan and you came back to New York. You, you said that you auditioned for American Idol. Was this when that happened or? What happened was um, when I was at UBS and the recession was happening, again, that was also like this moment of thinking about what I'm passionate about. So, so, so teaching was one of those things that's on the back of my mind. The other was becoming a, a global pop star. <laughs> and <laughs> the American Idol editions were in town. They were, they were in East Rutherford, New Jersey. And I saw it. It was an open casting. So we have this global calendar at UBS, like when you're taking time off. And I put on the calendar that said Jason Dash, American Idol edition. And I let everyone know, including my line manager, that I was going to these auditions. And if I did not show up the next day, that they would know that I would have made it. And, and you know, I was going to become this whole pop star. <laughs> Unfortunately, I came back the next day. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, that edition was actually quite pivotal. And, and I'm glad you asked because I still was very nervous. Um, you know, going into that audition because I didn't really, you know, sing publicly before, you know, the, the most public performance I, I gave was in the shower. So that audience was, was also just kind of nerve wracking for me. But the fact that I still went to that audition and there was, you know, 10,000 people in the crowd auditioning was, I think, one indicator that music was something that really moved me and was something that I was really interested in. It, it did kind of start to um, resonate, I think, as I thought about what I want to do next after this, like, Wall Street world, uh, making a mark in the music business. And that was me kind of realizing that I could kind of pivot the rejection that I had from that edition, but also kind of merge it with something that did work for me, which was, you know, business, which was that business that I ran um, even before college, I did well. And maybe if I merged business and music together, I would have better success. Do you mind if I ask a couple more questions about the American Idol experience? 
Absolutely. Go ahead. All right. So it's very rare that I get an American Idol contestant on the podcast. So what was it like? Like, did you have to, did you have to stand in line? Like, like how they, how they make it seem on the show? Like you stand outside for hours and hours and hours. So don't believe everything that you see on TV because it is kind of a little bit misleading. Um, Cause like when you watch American Idol, you see like the pan of the shots of the, of the big crowd. And then, then you, then you next see, you know, right now it's Katy Perry, but you know, back then Paul Abdul or, or whatnot. Um, but there's actually many different phases of the process. So the very first phase, which is the one that I went to, which is the open call. Um, you don't have the Simon Cowles and Paul Abdul there. Um, it's producers of the show and you're auditioning with them. Um, and it is, it is kind of a, arduous process like you know there, it was hours of waiting but I did remember like it was such a cool bonding experience with the other people around me there were folks that you know and, and maybe this is kind of like the show itself there were people that were around me that said you know I quit my job and you know I'm gonna be the next American Idol like this is it there's right. nothing else that I'm making on so that was kind of cool to see and people had their guitar saying you know, random songs together. So it was this nice, like, kumbaya <laughs> um, experience, if you will. And um, and looking back, like, I'm so happy that I had that experience because, you know, even today, American Idol, I think, is not as, as like, present, right, in people's minds. You have all these different shows, right. but it still holds such a special place in my heart. And I still probably am the only person my age that consistently watches it. And I still watch, like, last season with Katy Perry. <laughs> what song did you sing? Um, it also probably was the reason I got rejected because it just wasn't a great choice. But I sang Maroon 5 and Rihanna's If I Never See Your Face Again. <laughs> but I think it took me a while to realize that, you know, the American Idol audition is not the only way that you can make it in, in music. And certainly, you know, I'm kind of speeding by talking about it in retrospect. But you can imagine when they first say, like, sorry, you didn't make the bar and we're looking for, you know, we have a higher um, bar this year in terms of who makes it through. It was still crushing. And, but when I look back, I think that crushing moment was, was very important because the fact that I got rejected um, and I still wanted to weave the music meant that it was a passion of mine. And I think I would not have realized it probably otherwise if it wasn't for those theories that led me to kind of still stay on, stay on this journey that I've been on. I like that you said that. And I feel like a lot of what you're, the way that you're answering some of the questions is you're sort of reflecting on all this personal development. The recession hit, you were working at UBS, you had decided that you wanted to be a pop star. It didn't work out. You left your job because, you know, the financial times were just terrible and you went off to Japan, you had all of these new experiences, you tapped into your creativity, and you said, this is really kind of what I want. I want to merge my creative mindset with my business mindset and my music passion. And I think that it sounds like you had a very big growth stage. Yeah, the targeting of entertainment companies was actually a mixture of those different learning moments. Um, I knew like when I came back, I was not applying for... Um, Morgan Stanley, for instance, I, I had that message-making background and I wanted to leverage that experience to work for an entertainment company. And particularly an entertainment company that has some aspects of music weaved in would be the cream of the crop because that was where kind of that 
energy from that edition came from and my interest in it. I focused on applying to jobs in entertainment and was fortunate enough to have Disney give me a call back and um, I landed a job doing business development for Disney's Broadway division, which was their live entertainment shows. So I think kind of laying that gig at, at Disney was, um, was, was, was a moment that I remember being very, very excited about. So how did you find this Disney job? Um, you know, contrary to probably what you may think where all these jobs are due to connections, um, I didn't really have connections in entertainment because I, all my connections were people at banks and, you know, hedge funds. Um, so I remember using just websites like Indeed, where I t- literally typed in my interests, which would just be music business, and then see what pops up. And I remember applying to like MTV, and I applied to Disney, and actually got a callback from from Disney. So it was pretty awesome. And I think you know, yeah, being being persistent, and sometimes even dropping your resume in a black hole, you can be surprised by the results. That's how I got my first internship in New York. I applied to 500 jobs and only one of them wanted me. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, it could also be a numbers game, right? So I, I did like drop my resume probably to definitely over 100 companies, right? Um, so it's, it's kind of this like, it's, it's just like a pipeline of opportunities. So. so what was it like entering a new job? How were you perceived coming in from a banking background? Um, because I worked in business development and finance, I don't think that the banking background was odd. I think it was, it was, it was good. And they liked that I came with this rigor. I, I would say what was interesting about Disney and particularly theater. Um, so, you know, at this time I was becoming more, um, in tune with my gay identity. I wasn't out at UBS, but I would say I was out at Disney. Going at Disney, there actually were a lot of other LGBTQ people, which was cool to see. I was the only Asian person, you know, even with the intersectionality that I had, made it kind of isolating. And I didn't see a lot of or any Asian members in terms of the leadership. Um, So it did make me question that could this be a place that I could grow in or can I be, can I be that VP? So it was kind of putting me in this interesting spot. So um, I definitely did learn a lot about the entertainment business. I learned a lot about business. But I think like some of that representation wasn't there, which actually caused me to, in the end, seek other opportunities. Was there a point where you felt like these differences that you had, being a gay man, being Asian, being, and working in entertainment, do you, f- do you feel like there was a point in your career where you were able to use it to your advantage? Well, I think, I think that probably came a little bit later on. I think in the early starts of my career, it, it made me feel like it was a disadvantage because at UBS, we're, we're talking about the football scores um, the next day and I know nothing about sports. And I'm, I'm like looking at my BlackBerry to look up whatever sports team and then maybe being able to have a conversation and be like, oh yeah, that team won. But then probably sometimes make getting getting the sports completely wrong, like football versus basketball or something. something right, a basket insane. or a goal, or whatever. <laughs> so, and I unfortunately today I still don't really understand football, so that that explains how much progress I made there. Um, but I think it was, it, you know, 
I actually did view it as a disadvantage for a while until I would say I, I, I definitely kind of embraced more of my identity as, as my career mo- moved along. I was a little bit more open at Viacom, Nickelodeon. And then um, I would say Google was a place where I probably was able to feel my full self, which was pretty amazing. And there was a gay voice group, which from that group actually led me to meet my current fiance, um, which was pretty amazing. Um, and then I started to become more involved in groups like Out in Tech, which is an organization of LGBTQ people in tech. And then you meet people not just at Google, but then just look all these folks that are gay at Facebook and Twitter and the community started, started growing. So the thing is that I didn't actually have that at UBS. So like we didn't have that. I didn't feel like this big like LGBTQ cross networking. Um, so it made me feel in some ways that I had to hide that identity that didn't seem very present, right? In this kind of overall macho culture and my managing directors were straight and we're all talking about football that I didn't understand. So it was kind of this learning moment that um, I, I kind of had to kind of open up the, the, the layers as I went along my career. It sounds like it was difficult, especially at the beginning of your career, but it's great that you were able to see it as a benefit. Now you're leaving Disney, you're starting working at Viacom, Nickelodeon. I'm curious to know, like joining a new company, I, I know personally you need to hit the ground running, right? You need to show people that you can walk the walk. How did you do that at Nickelodeon? Yeah, so Nickelodeon is my now my, my third or fourth job. Um, and I think I was able to to lean on the fact that I worked in investment banking as an analyst and um, can kind of bring this experience in terms of uh, covering tech and media companies to bear. And then I also worked at another um, entertainment company, Disney, right, that actually did really well with a younger audience and with kids. Um, and that actually was an experience I think Nickelodeon you know its biggest competitor is Disney so wanted to understand how can I better capture the viewership of this audience um, and you know it, it actually felt kind of natural to be able to now kind of enter in the mid stage of my career and bring all these different insights um, into a team um, that made me very unique to like have a holistic understanding what's happening in the entertainment landscape. And, and that, that was, that was some, some of the strategic intel that I brought to the team. So many of your roles involved strategy and business development. What are some things that people that they wouldn't know about your role that leads to creating value for shows like SpongeBob or Dora or the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? I think, um, so, so business development, um, a, a lot of people think it's, it's like, um, it's, it's all about like you're creating these new partnerships or you're negotiating with companies. And surely that, that is a big part of it. But really, when you drill down to it, 50% of it is um, partnerships and external, uh, external facing, which, which is an element I do enjoy. I, I like actually working with people and I like being able to see what other people are thinking like outside of the company that I'm working with. Um, but the other 50% of a, a really good business developer is one that also is very in tune with what's happening internally. So you really have to develop the connections between your teammates. Um, you know, when I worked at Nickelodeon, it's a part of Viacom. So um, I also reached out to MTV and Comedy Central because like that, those strategies, 
in terms of what they're seeing in the marketplace can also be very helpful to what I'm doing. And making all those connections internally, I think having that foundation oftentimes is, is going to be what's critical to be able to land those like outward facing deals. And so were these, were these deals that you worked on on your own or was it something that you would, you would do the outreach and then you'd bring it back to a team and you guys would have to work, it, work through it as a team? I would say it's very seldom that it'll be alone. Um, it was definitely a very collaborative environment. And I mean, some, some of the partnerships that we're talking about are, are there's so many different parties involved that there could be like a pretty strategic layer. Um, so I often had to work with many different people um, in my sales teams, um, also across even different divisions at Viacom to get a deal close. You were at Nickelodeon for how long? About a year? Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. So you were bouncing around quite a bit and then you went to work at Google, right? Yeah. So most people, at least not me, don't think of music when they're thinking about Google. Um, right. How did you find that opportunity and what was your role? You know, I, I did apply for roles at Google in the past and was rejected. They kept my resume and file. So you know that email that you get from the recruiter that says, sorry, you haven't been selected. We found other candidates that are a better match. But we'll keep your resume and file. And you always think it's, it's BS and no one's ever going to get back to you. Um, but during my time at Nickelodeon, someone did reach out and said that we had a resume and file. Um, and we thought this could be a match for the online entertainment partnerships team, which would be interested. And through a series of interviews, um, I ended up getting that role and ended up joining Google as I thought it was, a, it was a great opportunity to kind of now focus on digital entertainment. And I didn't join the music team initially, so I was kind of focused more on um, there, was, there was general entertainment companies and my role at Google was partnerships in terms of helping these um, digital companies monetize their products and their websites using Google technology. As, as I kind of got promoted during my time at Google, I had the, the opportunity to also, I think, hone in a little bit more on my interests. And there was an opening um, for um, uh, leading music partnerships within the ad tech space. And then that was the role that I would take on during the second half of my tenure at Google. What was like a regular day like? Like, was it spreadsheets? Was it more phone calls? Was it meeting with people? Actually, like a mixture of all of those. So, so some of the partners that I worked with when I first joined were Gawker Media, although that, that doesn't exist anymore, um, the Weather Channel. And these are all, these are all partners of Google. Um, and they leverage Google technology advertising technology or advertising demand to be able to generate revenue. So um, I was their partner lead. So I would talk to these companies, understand like um, how was the, how was the relationship with Google? Is it good? Is it bad? Do they want to, do, do they want to elevate it? Do they need to generate more revenue? And then kind of create plans of how um, they could achieve some of their goals in terms of working with us. Um, because the thing is that Google, you know, like many of us are familiar with Google, and especially from a business standpoint, there are a lot of automated tools that Google provides, and that you know, like if you want to, if you want to create an, an ad on Google right now um, yourself, like you can just do it without talking to anyone. But Google does have like a, a human team, right, that would work with some of the larger clients and publishers. Like that was my team, where I'm actually becoming the face to Google and anything they need from Google, they could route through me. 
I, what I like about your career is that you're kind of weaving in and out of different areas of entertainment through large corporations that typically people wouldn't think about these opportunities. Like I know that when I was first getting into music, I thought about like agents, managers, record labels. You know, I, I didn't really even think about Disney. I didn't think about even well now like Netflix. I didn't think about Google. These were just not, but now, you know, I'm hearing from you that there's partnerships that you can forge between media companies and Google because Google really works with just about every company. Like, so those companies that I worked for, like music actually was very present. Um, so like I grew up with MTV. So, so Viacom to me really represented music in many ways. And then when I was at Viacom, what was, what was essentially making Viacom um, being disrupted and why was their revenue going down? It actually was because of Google and YouTube, right? Like all that viewership is moving and the music videos, um, um, you know, music videos is actually the number one consumption activity on YouTube. So joining Google actually to me in many ways represented where music was going. Now, you know, you're working at Google, you've been there for a few years, you obviously loved the job. So now why did you leave? You know, I definitely loved my, my role at Google and I felt like I learned a lot. Um, but I, it actually inspired this entrepreneurial curiosity um, within me. And it made me think back to the business that I started when I was 13, um, being able to, you know, have a bigger impact, right? Because at this time, we're talking about Google is 50,000, 60,000 people. And, you know, could I have a larger impact by being able to be at a smaller place? That was the thinking that I had. Um, so I left Google and um, I started my own startup consulting company. So that's JV Media Ventures. And that was this like sandbox um, that I still kind of kept today. But that was the initiation of it where I worked with different startups um, and um, helped them grow and kind of use the skills um, that I learned from, you know, the, the giants like Google or Viacom or Investment Banking and apply it to places that I think that could um, use a boost. So you left Google without having another job lined up? That's right. Yeah. Wow. That must have been scary. It was scary. Um, it was scary. But I think, you know, just probably if I think about the, the risks that I've taken, you know, leaving Wall Street to go to Japan, like it just, you know, to, 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 to do teaching, which was to my parents' dismay, you know, it didn't feel so different. <laughs> Okay. So you're, you're working in consulting. At what point did you decide that you wanted to get a job? I, I saw that you also worked at Deezer. Yeah. So, um, you know, having, having kind of like, I, I guess, satisfied the itch of being able to um, see what it was like by being able to work with a couple of different companies, create this new sandbox. I decided, you know, I didn't actually really work for a medium sized company. So it is larger than, you know, a, a small startup that doesn't have the resources, but I would love to be able to participate in the future growth of the company. And that's kind of something that I felt like consulting didn't give me because it would be these short-term projects for a couple of months. And then I leave and I, I wonder like what happens unless I kind of like stay on top of them. Um, so like staying long-term in a company, I think still was something that I was seeking and that comes from my background, right? From Google and Viacom. So I um, ended up meeting a company called Deezer um, that is the one of the leading music streaming platforms in France um, and Deezer competes with Spotify and Apple Music 
um, is a top five music streaming company, a little bit lesser known in the US. Um, but they had an opening um, based in Miami to lead business development. And I saw that as a really cool opportunity to work for, you know, more of this challenger brand in the music space. But, um, you know, kind of be able, because they were not as established, so like everything was in stone, but they still had the resources, right, to be able to like enact strategies. So um, it was a fun way, I think, to be able to jump into the streaming environment, but also have some room for creativity. So you were leading partnerships here, or, or leading, leading business development as a whole. That, that takes a lot of balls. Did you feel confident going into that job? I did. I think like there was still like, you know, suddenly there were some unknowns, um, you know, like, you know, Deezer's not really known in the U.S. Like I also was tasked with growing it, growing them in the North American market. Um, but I think, you know, some of the relationships that I think Deezer didn't have was with um, that tech experience. And, you know, I managed the Google relationship at Deezer and you know, in, in many ways, Google actually deprioritized Deezer, seeing that they were a smaller company. You know, Google would, would want to focus on some of the larger clients, right? But I was able to create this, this case study, if you will, of why supporting a partner like Deezer can make sense. And um, I actually helped um, Deezer launch on the Google Home in the U.S. and different markets. Um, and that was a really big win because when we looked at the data, we got so many new subscribers from, um, of Deezer um, since they really wanted some of those voice integrations. And so was that through some of your relationships that you had made while you were at Google? Yes, I was able to kind of like work some of the initial um, connections that I had, but also getting some things prioritized um, when they were not. You know, I, I like that you've, you've allowed yourself this flexibility. You were confident enough to leave Google start your own consulting company and you worked with Deezer. Now you're working at 88 rising, you know, now it seems that you're focusing a lot on music and technology. And I'm curious to know, you know, how is technology currently changing the music industry in your opinion? Technology has, has completely changed the, the way that we can consume music. Um, you know, from that time that I was, lining up for that American Idol audition, we were all still buying CDs, right? Then it was the mini discs that were, that were super cool. And um, then very quickly it went to MP3s and digital downloads. Um, you know, like the way that we stream today, it's so easy. And for $10 a month, you can have 60 million tracks um, uh, before your eyes. Um, however, I would say, even though like it's created this, this seemingly sense of democratization of music, um, it's still very hard to make it as an artist. And I think I see this firsthand at 88 Rising because many of these artists that we represent would be ignored by other labels um, really because of their race. And there's this underrepresentation and misrepresentation that's still happening. So I think there's still, you know, in terms of fighting for your share voice right in, in in your playlist harrison there's still a lot of gatekeepers like what's happening in this spotify like top pop playlist could dictate what you're listening to and you know is an asian artist part of it if it is then maybe you'll listen to them so we're still kind of fighting that fight with the dsps and the platforms and then also i think you know as as a listener we also are not really interested 
especially in the millennial audience, of spending too much time like picking and choosing. We want music service to just tell us what we can listen to. Right. Um, I would say that's actually one of the powerful features of Deezer that, that we did really well. Um, we had a feature called Flow that differentiated us from other music services. With one click, it would play music that we think you would want to hear based on time of day, based on what you've been listening to and kind of create this like AI never ending playlist. And I think in many ways, I would love to see technology to go a step further um, to integrate in not just like music, but maybe there's certain times of the day that I still want to listen to Z100 in New York City, my radio station, because I like Elvis Duran. There's also times where I like podcasts or maybe I want to, I want to see content from CNN. Like can, can the future of music be more encompassing of audio and then also based on time of day, just give me what I want to listen to and do it in a way that makes my life easier and with less choices. So what you're saying is like, let's say you're in the middle of a playlist. Let's say you want to burn through, you know, I don't know, some, some K-pop right in the morning, burning through your email. And then, you know, you'll have death metal from 11 till, till lunch. And then during lunch, it'll just switch to a podcast. Mm -hmm. And, and then, then maybe after the podcast, I'll say that, did you know it's going to rain tonight at 6.30 p.m.? Right. Um, get your umbrella before your dinner. So what music technology are you most excited about that you think might change the industry? So um, I advise this, this cool startup um, called Music AI. What the founders, um, they're, they're incredible PhD um, grads, so Music AI um, is, has analyzed millions of songs throughout the years and what is the anatomy of a pop hit and um, can give you a percentage um, on when you put a song through, through its machine, like what percentage of it will be a hit. And I think that actually could be quite interesting, I think, for record labels and future companies for them to figure out like which song um, in an album should I invest in or like should I invest in this um, in the singer. You know, oftentimes music, I still believe there's, there's still a lot of, you know, feeling to it. It may not always be able to be run through a machine, but I think also if you think about how far we've come with Deezer and Spotify and like all this data that we have, um, it is interesting. Like if we really pull apart that data to figure out what makes a song successful or what makes an artist successful, I think there is actually some underpinnings to a formula. It may not be perfect, but allows us to kind of analytically predict where it can go. I think I think you're right. There's you know a, there's definitely a way to to predict a hit. Just a closing question: What kind of advice would you give to people to you know that are looking to stand out, um, whether they're applying to jobs, applying to internships? You know, how can they, how can they shine through the competition? When I look back at my career, oftentimes how I landed up in my next opportunity was, was me just following that, that voice of, of passion. And I think integrating that passion to what I'm doing. Um, <clears throat> so when I, when I joined MS in Banking, I didn't just join any like random group like healthcare, which, which is not like a strong passion of mine. 
I joined media and tech because that was the media and entertainment shines right through. And then that also led to American Idol. And then, you know, the Disney, the Nickelodeon, so it kind of falls into play. But like at that time, if I look, if I look forward, I don't think I could have predicted all the different companies I'll be joining, but I was guiding it in terms of narrowing the companies that I wanted to work for, or at least if I'm joining a function that doesn't seem so obvious to music like finance, I would still try to figure out where it could align. So the advice I would provide is that, you know, if your passion is like fashion or if your passion is movies and, you know, you may initially think that, Oh no, like that's not, that's not a career path I can take, or there's not a lot of money in fashion. So I don't want to do it. I actually would encourage you to think a little bit more creatively about it. Um, because the fact that you have that passion probably means that you're reading all these articles about it all the time. It's consuming your life. So what better way of, of making your career in some way a part of that passion that you have? And I think because you have that passion that's unique to you, it's going to make you more successful, right? Because you get to bring this, this passion that you have for that space uniquely into your career. So kind of follow that. And don't be afraid to take non-traditional choices because, you know, when you do that, it can lead you to surprising paths and incredible moments of learning. That, that's beautifully said. It sounds like there's a few things there. It, one of it is really following your passion because you can't teach passion, right? That's something that you have innately. And the second thing is you're crafting your story, which is exactly what you did. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much, Harrison, for having me. Hey, what's going on? Harry here. Just wanted to take a moment to shout everyone out who's been tuning into this podcast week after week, especially those who have taken 30 or 60 seconds out of their day to write me on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and also those who have left kind reviews on Apple Podcasts to share their love and express how each episode has positively affected their path in entertainment. This is the whole purpose of this podcast. I thank you so, so, so very much. That's the kind of support that keeps this podcast going. If there is somebody that you know that would make a phenomenal guest, they've got an inspirational story that would really resonate with a lot of people, please do reach out on any of our platforms and I will get in touch with you. Thanks again, everyone. Much love and stay safe.